Hi everyone, it's Damien here, your resident Scream Queen. In true NPR podcast style, we have some exciting announcements. Over at Hot Chicks, we've been cooking up some truly glorious, unabashedly queer film events for you all. Get ready for Studio Ghibli, Xavier Dolan, and Iris Apfel to come to a very cool, very chic, very artsy cinema in Brisbane town. But before all of that, we're partnering up with Goma and their film noir cinema program to present Bound on Friday the 19th of May. Ticket giveaways and all of those details will be available via the website, Facebook, and Instagram. Bound brings up the rear of a dark, sordid, twisted, unsettling, tilted month of film noir at Goma. But wait, you might very well be asking, what is film noir? All I know about it is that one Simpsons episode, The Dad Who Knew Too Little, where that crazy P.I. Homer Hyde to investigate Lisa, then tries to frame Lisa for an environmental crime. Never fear, because I had the pleasure in sitting down with Dr. Samantha Lindop last week to talk film noir and women in film noir. But... When you get someone as interesting, chatty, and knowledgeable as Sam in a room, it can be hard to stick to topic. We actually talked about everything, from the gendering of robots. How does Siri sounding like a female change the way we interact with a genderless AI? To the filming of Sunset Boulevard. I never knew that at the start of that film, when we look up from the bottom of the pool to see the dead body of Joe Gillis floating in it, what we are actually seeing is a reflection. It was done by shooting through mirrors at the bottom of a studio water tank. To Westworld. We talked a lot about Westworld. The husband-wife team who are involved in kind of putting that together and making it, they were saying that, like, part of it came out of that the wife continually played GTA, Grand Theft Auto. Oh, yeah. And she would always wonder, it's like, I've just run over a character in this, and, like, I drive off. But does the character kind of go home wounded? And, like, would they have health insurance? Would they then be able to go and support their family? What would happen to, like, their house, which might be in another part of this massive world? What ethical qualms do you have of going and running over 20 people? Yeah, So if I can do it in a a video game, what does that say about me and my my latent desires? Yeah, the latent (laughs) desires. And the concern that technology could make those just so much more impactful Mm. if currently they're in a nice relatively sanitized box of a tv what do we do when technology can just really reach out of that into the real world i'll leave that question for you to answer and apologies my nasaliness in this recording i had a cold when i spoke to sam we talked about what does a doctor of film actually do piecemeal answer brings an almost encyclopedic knowledge of film to every viewing and conversation she has, has an incredible amount of fun, re-watches films dozens of times, and creates daring lectures on Australian carnivalesque before dashing over to chat to me about film noir. But in Sam's own words... Who are you and what do you do? Oh. <laughs> 
I'm an academic here at um, the University of Queensland. Um, I teach across a range of different subjects, mostly sort of media studies based uh, cultural studies, um, and I research um, looking at mostly gender representations in, in cinema. Um, yeah, the fatal figure. Yeah. Um, robots is my latest thing. <laughs> Your latest As obsession. We were just talking about my yeah. latest obsession, yes. There was a point in our conversation where Sam simply said to me, film is metaphor. It may not always look it, but whether it's sci-fi, whether it's action, whether it's art house, film is talking from and back to the society that makes and views it. So, what kind of metaphor is film noir? And where do women fit in? Let's find out. is what is film noir? Because I think when people hear about it, you Mm. might think of like a shady figure down by the docks, Mm. or you might think like a dark lighting and a Mm. dame just smoking Mm. in the corner, or you might think of a specific time of film, or you might think of that kind of almost crooning dialogue, but people might not have an idea of what it actually is. So are you able to start Mm. talking us through that? Okay, so we're, we're talking classic film noir for now, yeah. rather than neo-noir. For now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Well, it's been described as a lot of things, as a, a genre, a style, a mood, a sensibility. And I think, well, I suppose for me, it is very much a mood and it is very much a sensibility um, rather than, than a clear genre. Um, so what is film noir? Film noir is... It's kind of instantly recognisable, but yet it's not just... It, there, are, there are some distinguishing markers. Um, so things that like um, single-point lighting, which was different at the time. Uh, the time three-point high-key lighting was sort of the standard. Um, and so what does single-point lighting look okay, like? Okay, so single-point lighting looks very heavily shadowed. So um, it's dark, it's gloomy, and you'll have a point of light somewhere. Um, maybe it's a street light, or and it often is up high, something like that. Yeah. And that's the only illumination on the screen, and it casts these really heavy dark shadows. So you get these characters are, that are sort of often half enveloped in shadow. Yeah. Um, mysterious, mysterious, creepy. Yeah, there's a lot ominous. of that going on. Um, cantilever Dutch angles, so skewed camera angles and uh, very extreme angles, low angles and high angles. Yeah. Um, a lot of which can night. always be, which can be one amazing to look at, yeah. but two really disorienting at points yeah. because and we're then, so used to kind of being like, yeah. oh, I can kind of stand where the camera is, for yeah. example. But when it's like a high, crooked angle, you're just kind of like tilting your yeah. neck to try where to position this? yourself. And you do. You find yourself moving around and you know, um, sort of trying to position yourself. But the, all those 
the, all those conventions are, are there for a reason. Yeah. And they're there um, to say something about the style. They're meant to be discombobulating and dis- disconcerting. <laughs> they're saying things about the characters, that the characters are, you know, skewed and the, the storyline's skewed and not quite, things aren't quite right. So all those, those strange angles are all to give a very particular meaning um, so it's not just for fun. What the film looks like is trying to like yeah. reveal that within these characters there is like what you see as skewed is also maybe how their like psyche, their soul, or their brain yeah. is also a little off kilter. Yeah, I mean the characters in film noir are predominantly they're troubled. You know, yeah. they're they're corruptible. They speak back to a time where there was a whole bunch of social unrest. So it's you know the war era and post-war era there's a lot of changes or shifts going on in society and and American society in particular particular, which is where film noir was made Um, I'm not it it, the people who are making it come from Europe and and there's a whole bunch of different influences but film noir was made in Hollywood and so um, yeah, it speaks back to the socio-cultural climate of America at that time. There was post-war, there was, um, during the war, um, there were a lot of shifts in terms of gender. Um, you know, women were entering the workforce, you know, for, often for the first That's time, time, if they're middle, you know, middle-class women. Um, but, but then after the war, men were coming back. Um, they had to sort of try and reintegrate back into society. Um, and you have Most all these of them women had doing terrible jobs. post-traumatic stress disorder, the, the condition that didn't exist then. But yeah. but you know, um, they were psychologically disturbed from the trauma of war. They they had to go back and try and fit back into the, their sort of the domestic setting with women who had changed, with their roles were uncertain. There was high employment, you know, um, housing issues. All there was. There was a whole bunch of uncertainty and angst going on in society at that time, and so this is. You know the the world that noir inhabits. Not to mention the experiences of the filmmakers themselves, many who have fled Nazi Germany, and so they were sort of displaced themselves. Um, and of course, you know, as an art form, it, it speaks back to the you know the experiences of the people making it. So so yeah, if you think this is where film noir sits, and these are the characters that it, it's engaging with, and and then you get into the influences like hard boiled. Yeah. Um, narratives, James M. Kane, who wrote Double Indemnity and um, The Postman Always Rings Twice, and Mildred Pierce, and um, films such as that, and but books such as that, I will yeah. say, which were then made into, into films. films. Um, so you've got that influence, you've got um, the influence of yeah, German filmmakers, um, uh, Strassen film. Um, that emerged during a period before the war, yeah. which was sort of in itself um, sort of heavy, very heavily influenced by the Weimar period in Germany at that time, which, the, was, which was itself sort of unstable. unstable. And, um, and those hard lines you were talking about in lighting kind of really do at points come out of not directly, but come out of German film in terms of all of the exp- like experimentation around expressionism yep. and like with sets where light was almost painted directly onto it. There are, despite how American, in inverted commas, this film noir was during this early, mm. like almost canonical stage, mm. there were definitely those heavy European influences. Yeah, yeah, not just 
German influences, French poetic realism factors really heavily. So, and then you've also got other influences like Italian neorealism. So yeah. some film noirs are very much like that. They're stripped back and they're hard edged and they're. Um, so film noirs do vary in, but you know you can see all those influences weaving into them. Then there's also gangster films as well, yeah. um, which also you know factor in. So so they're a mix. It's a real boiling pot. It's a boiling pot, and I think I mean when people were making film noir at the time, they were just they were making these films. It wasn't called film noir until <laughs> later. Um, uh, you know, after the war, when yeah. when the French actually got a chance to see what was going <laughs> the on, the French there. getting their hands yeah, on things. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. And they're like, oh, you know, and they it's called film noir because it's like, oh, these these films are really dark. But it's that weird thing that you return to that, despite how maybe tricky it is to get a definition to call it maybe mm. a genre with a particular period, or to call it a mood, or to call it just like mm. almost. A film expression of what was happening at the time. It is that odd thing that even though that is quite difficult, when you go in and you start watching one, you immediately know yeah, what you're watching. Yeah, and that's why I like to think of it as a sensibility because it, it there are those common influences and they work together and they work together in different ways in each film, but they do create a very particular feel, and it is and it is a mood and a sensibility more than a than a clear sort of I mean genre itself is a Hollywood thing. Yeah. Okay. And it and it was designed to as a as a marketing like tool to okay, sell. Okay. So that you know, oh well, you know, let's go and see a Western. We know what's gonna be in a Western. A Western um is gonna have this and this and this element and this outcome. Um and a film noir was never like that. Yeah. You know, they would be great. They were played before the feature film. They they were never sort of yeah, they weren't intended to be um, they were marketed and, uh, you know, they were, they were more, I suppose, I wouldn't say art house, but they were that, they were a side thing that yeah. was going on. And in terms of that kind of sensibility, I always just think about it like that feeling you get when you watch film noir is some kind of like, you are slightly anxious in some kind of way oh, of yeah. what's happened. Oh, yeah. And you are slightly repulsed in terms of by some of the characters and their actions. Oh, yeah. But simultaneous to that, there is this intense kind of desire to lean in. Yeah. That the characters, yeah. despite how at points twisted or morally corrupt they become, or even psychologically unstable, you are still so attracted to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you should feel uncomfortable. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's that simultaneous feeling of wanting to lean in yeah. and lean away at yes. the same time. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, and and a good film noir will always achieve that. And I think one of those good film noirs is Double Indemnity mm. in terms mm. of with the broad plot outline of that being that a wife essentially plans with an insurance agent to get rid of, do away with her husband Mm -hmm. in order that they can get the money. And Mm -hmm. the insurance agent has the very clever idea that they can essentially get a double indemnity Mm -hmm. if that happens on a train. Mm -hmm. And so it is... You can see how all the influences can automatically be pulled in in that brief description. Like, there's the gangster elements, there is the uncertainty of, like, the wife's position in the house because she is second-time 
Sorry. Mm. He is second time married. Mm. Um, and and she may or may not have murdered the, the wife. Yeah. The first wife. And um, so yeah. those characters you can automatically just read as kind of contentious and they're making really morally dubious choices. Yeah. They're, but they they're, are so, so engaging. Mm, they're corruptible. Um, well, Walter Neff is corruptible. Yeah, and Phyllis, Phyllis Dietrich is, is just corrupt. Just corrupt. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, well it's, it's, I think it was Foster Hirsch described her as you know like sort of this evil, chilling and reptilian kind of character, and she really is. She's, yeah, uh, Barbara Stanwyck is um, her phenomenal. Performance, yeah, it's it phenomenal. really is. Yeah, um, she's she's far a much better actress than. Lana Turner for sure. Yeah. Who, who's more of a uh, visual showpiece, but yeah, Barbara Stanwyck is perfectly cast for for the role of of Phyllis for sure. Yeah, and when you first meet Phyllis, it's Walter Neff who is the insurance agent, kind of comes to their house, and he knocks on the door and kind of gains entrance, um, and Phyllis is there on the staircase, and she is, as she describes it, has been sunbathing, so she's there in a towel which is essentially probably the closest to nude you could yes, possibly get absolutely and G- given is, the, the motion picture code strictures at the time yeah um, and it is they yeah they sort of they they sort of forced a lot of innuendo and you had to use your imagination a lot you know you could get away still, with crime even now it is still kind of so sensual and revealing and the it way is, you yes, have yes. the camera kind of splits between like essentially eyeing up her, and then also capturing how Walter Neff is almost instantly captivated yeah, by this woman. Yeah, ad- it adopts his, his visual point of view of her, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and, and then switches to him, and you can see his response in the third person. Um, but yeah, I, I think it really is, it, it, it holds its weight still, yeah. you know, she doesn't have to be there. Like it, it, if she was there naked, it would not work yeah. the way it does with the the town and the suggestion and um, yeah, it's it's still a, a wonderful, wonderful scene. What is a femme fatale? Because I think starting with those questions has led us to pretty interesting avenues. Yeah, okay, so femme fatales, they're a construct that has been around forever, you know, if you think uh, Eve or Pandora is probably a really good example, and indeed there's a a film that actually sort of literally plays out the Pandora myth. but yeah, you know, there's this idea that, that um, sirens and that women are these objects of, well, women are other and they're obviously a source of anxiety because of their other, if you want to look at it in terms of a psychoanalytic interpretation. But yeah, it's not a new thing. It's not a new idea. It goes back. Um, and um, the first time, sort of in, in film, you can take it back to these early um, silent films, uh, where they have these characters, the, the vamp, Theta Barra, mm-hmm. played, famously played, um, this character called the vampire, and she wasn't literally, she wasn't a vampire in a sort of uh, horror sense, she was a sort of mortal embodiment of a vampire. There's this <laughs> scene where she's 
on this ship and this this one of her spawned lovers comes up and just shoots himself in front of her at her feet because you know he's she's just she just ruins men and strips them their money and you know, yeah. doesn't care and you know um, so yeah you know the, there's a long history and the Fon Fatale in Film Noir is part of that lineage and I think a big part of that lineage in a film that definitely kind of does come up as a potential Fon Fatale is Cleopatra because yeah. the way that she was written about bit of like from ancient sources people like Plutarch for instance is that she was like eastern decadent corrupted Mark Antony um, mm. was like sexually cunning but was also intelligent mm. like drunk and played dice with him and therefore totally manipulated mm. him and mm. that was like so present mm. and then you see a film with like Elizabeth Taylor where she essentially plays a very kind of similar or like Hollywood updated kind of role as mm. this femme fatale who just manipulates the men. Yes. It's yes. like not only is that history kind of bequeathed to film but also film definitely at points can talk back to it and play into it. Yeah. Yeah. It's very very much a, a patriarchal perspective of women. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> those those sort of yeah other mysterious creatures that that um, we fall for and that makes us vulnerable. <laughs> but then is there the opportunity to kind of use that as a site of power? Because I think at points with femme fatale, there are, not to simplify it, mm. but like two broad sides of treatment, that it is kind of an instance of like a patriarchy feeling threatened mm. by women that has a long history, but also particularly comes up in America at the time when women are gaining all that kind of agency. Yeah, um, yeah. Or is yeah. it that actually this is women subverting that power by manipulating the yeah. men and in some ways getting their way? Okay, so it's it's important to look at what the femme fatale does. So, because there's a lot of myths about the figure, but when you go back and look at, okay, so so what is actually happening with this character yeah. in these films? So first of all, these films are told from the protagonist's perspective. Okay, I think going back to Dublin Indemnity, I think it's a good working example. It's it's told, it's, it's narrated from <laughs> Walter's perspective. Yeah. So the way we see um, Phyllis is the way Walter not sees her, the way he remembers her, because remember he's telling the story after she shot him. Yeah. I suppose here I should apologise for a spoiler, but the film is over 70 years old, so sorry not sorry? Right, and he's dying, so this woman's murdered him for when he <laughs> dies. Yeah. So she's, she's murdered him, he's in the, in his, on his deathbed. It's how he remembers her. Okay, so that's a very loaded position for, for a start. Um, but in terms of the character itself um, and, and scholarship on the character, um, often the emphasis in terms of film scholarship has similarly been on that protagonist, on the male, and not so much looking at, okay, what about the, the font fatale herself? So there's a few things that stand out about it, and, and that is she she's lazy she's she doesn't work she's not transgressive she's a user you know um she's not actually representative of the working woman of american society at that time right and she's often been attributed to that but that's not what she does and indeed there are characters in film noir who fill that role 
they they do have working you know characters like say Laura for instance in Otto Preminger's yeah. film um, she's initially they think she might be a font photographer she's not she's a she's a business executive she but she also plays by the rules she falls in love with men she doesn't use them she doesn't exploit her power she's a very powerful woman but she doesn't but it's within use the it. structure whereas the font fatale um, is is actually not that powerful because she's dependent on men uh, so so she's actually kind of like you, you could interpret her as making the best of the situation she has so yeah. she's you know think of phyllis phyllis um, was a nurse before she nursed um, her husband's first wife so she's you know she's probably not she's poor she sees an opportunity to acquire wealth comfort you know all those security. things come with security all those things and you've got to remember too that film noir is, is coming in on the back of um, a, a huge recession in the yeah. 1930s and when you look at 1930s film there's a lot of things that around women doing that. Women selling their themselves, basically women prostituting themselves because they've got no choice. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of films like The Redhead Woman and stuff that really actually speak back to that, that impoverished situation, the desperation of women at that time. And so you can you can look at the femme fatale in that way and go, okay, so yeah, she's 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 a greedy freeloader, but she's also you know, um, often in really shitty circumstance. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, thinking of the, and I think the thing yeah. on that with Phyllis is in terms of what maybe Walter, in terms of his narration, doesn't speak enough to is the situation with her husband at the time. Because Phyllis doesn't just, at least from my perspective of watching the film, doesn't just have like an incredibly generous and amazing husband who she decides no, to top off. Peak. He's a monster. Yeah. And there is like, not only is he like controlling, but also yes. the, he just rules the household. Yes. And there is total domination of both Phyllis and despite the fact that he seems to love her more, the daughter Lola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so what I think is interesting is that like, there is no consideration of what mm. if we heard it in a normal situation mm. that someone has a terrible domestic environment and they seek a route to get out of it because the routes that Phyllis had to get out of it were definitely limited otherwise because mm. That's divorce or any of those social she options wouldn't, wouldn't have been available or worked for her. Yes, yes. I mean, they, 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 there was divorce, but it was heavily stigmatised. She would, in, in, in the fiction narrative of Dublin Demonty, she would have lost everything because yes. you know and it and same with the postman always rings twice is another example where Cora is she's married to this pig of a man he's disgusting and yeah. then he wants to she so she starts building up this diner in the desert and making something of it and he decides oh no um, my sister is disabled and, and lives somewhere in, you know uh, I don't know where it is in the middle of nowhere in northern Canada, and you're going to go there, and you're going to go and become a, a nurse to to my sister, and so I, you know, yeah, her circumstances are actually really Horrendous. shitty. And then yeah. along comes this good-looking, you know, man, and he he's desirable, so and he also offers a way out, and yeah. the way out is, in that instance, well, we'll just bump the husband off, you yeah. know, and and so that kind of narrative arises quite a lot. Um, and, and of course, the protagonist is is sort of like, well, you know, a completely sort of besotted with, with with this woman, and and we'll have to, you know, 
well not happily but will go often they're not happy to go along with the plan but they will go along with the plan but it's weird then that like the way often the films present it is like all of the moral guilt kind of just gets thrown onto the women like in the example of phyllis at the end of the film walter and phyllis have a confrontation and walter is like you made me do it and all this happened yeah and essentially because of the way the script goes phyllis is like yeah i did yeah but there is no way get my dick out of my pants you evil woman yeah but there's like no acknowledgement of any of the kind of situation that she in some ways that she had no real choice either I mean, I, I mean, of course, there are choices, and I, I suppose the choice that Phyllis makes is the greedy option. Yeah. You know, she could divorce him and walk away with nothing and start again. So there, there are always choices. And or I'm perhaps sure, they're more limited. I mean, Walter had a good job. Come on, you yeah. know, she could have just been, you know, she could have... But, but I suppose there's that, mm, what, you know, the, the option of this continued lavish lifestyle that I live... And the possibility of living that without the the piggish husband in the picture, yeah, and and you know, um, yeah. So there's a lot of greed going on, but but I suppose my point is that it it, it it's kind of embedded in other social factors. So so the fonfatal is not just this figure, this one dimensional figure, who is just this sort of you know evil seductress. There's other things going on with the character, and when you and this is I suppose the nice thing about sort of looking at things in the context of the film more broadly um, and and the climate that, that it was produced in, you get this whole other picture about the font fatale and she really is a much more interesting character than she's often given credit for mm. and she's a more complex character than is often given credit for. And the, I suppose the unfortunate part is that um, rarely do we see her in classic film through the woman's eyes but that then get that inside. quite nicely brings us to neo-noir yeah. and those films because what we are really excited to talk about is bound and i think bound does a phenomenal job of bringing a woman's perspective to it and if we're talking about phyllis or a queer kind of, perspective yeah and we're yeah. talking about phyllis copping all the blame i'm just reminded at the end of Bound, a character says to one of the women, it's like, you made me do this. And she just responds, bullshit. Yeah. And it's just that, <laughs> like, it's almost yeah. like they've taken the classic film yeah. noir script and just been like, no, yeah. over the top of it, which is yeah. fantastic. Yeah, it's a, it's a very transgressive film. It's, it's fantastic in so many ways. Yeah. yeah it's so, informed by film noir. But it plays with that and speaks back to it, as you say, you know, it's like with, that, with that quote, you know, at the end there. It's yeah. very much speaking back to those. And so is traditions. that a big part of neo-noir, that it doesn't just come after film noir in terms mm. of time-wise, mm. at least, but that it also speaks back to it, maybe challenges it? Uh, yeah, I mean, film noir, uh, if you want to look at it, and I suppose... If we say, okay, so there's major cycles. So if we say classic is one major cycle. And of course, in between that, there was 70s noir, Chinatown, which I think is on the, on the line-up, is, sort of slits, sits in between that. But, but it, the 80s was where um, the, this sort of, you would say, the major cycle of neo-noir emerged. And I suppose there was a lot of things going on then um, in terms of 
gender politics in terms mm. of production shifts in production and rating systems that made oh, a big yeah, difference rating systems, yeah. yeah because so the motion picture codes that were in place with classic film noir that didn't allow <laughs> the you know it didn't allow the anyone to get away with crime you know the femme fatale had to die or be punished sent to prison as she is in the maltese falcon yeah come neo-noir all that, um, I mean, the the production code uh, strictures sort of weren't enforced in the 50s and they were finally sort of abolished in the 60s. So they were well and truly gone and then this rating system came in. So there weren't those constraints that you had. Um, it's also post um, second wave feminism, this movement. So um, that's happened. So there's been a lot of social, socio-political changes have occurred, um, a lot of changes in social attitudes. Um, there was the 60s and 70s where all you saw on screen was was nudity and that there was just this flagrant sort of celebration Violation. of, yeah, we don't need to, you know. Always wear a towel. <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah, yeah. That, that, so so it, there was like this swing in the 60s and 70s that kind of in, in many, mostly in exploitation films, but, but you know, it was there. Yeah. Um, and then come neo-noir, things had sort of settled back a bit. But there was also those freedoms too, um, to, to play around with, with you know, with those conventions of film noir and do things with them. And I think on that, with one of the opening scenes to Bound, kind of, in some ways, talks back to, I suppose, a scene like Double Indemnity, where you have Phyllis standing on the staircase. Whereas in Bound, uh, when there's that wonderful elevator scene, mm. when they step into the elevator, and you have two women essentially, like, just casting glances at one another, appreciative. And the tone just instantly changes when a man steps in, a man who's with one of the women. And you can just feel immediately, like, one, that they're looking at one another becomes slightly secretive, but there's something exciting about that secrecy. But also that, like, the momentary freedom is there. It's really quickly sucked away. Mm. But that brilliant, the moment that I love of when uh, the man and the woman step out in the elevator, leaving... Um, the kind of rocky woman just leaning, <laughs> yeah. leaning against yeah. the side, yeah. and she just checks out the butt yeah. of Violet as she walks down, yeah. and you get that like those brief moments of like slow down motion, but the gaze is so clearly Corky's, the mm. woman in the elevator, mm. which mm. just totally flips the original gaze that we yes. had for someone like Walter Neff looking at Phyllis. Yes. And I was just, as I was watching that, I was just mind blown. Like, yeah. it's just amazing. Plays, it uh, also plays on to a lot of um, films featuring Marilyn Monroe. Because yeah. Because there was this obsession with her, her the way her butt moved when she walked. Yeah, I know. think one um, of the people involved in um, Some Like It Hard said she was like jello on suspension yeah, on jello on yeah, springs just, or something. Yes, which is yeah. such a weird like it's such a gross <laughs> description to give a human mm, being. Mm, and and they did used to spend a lot of time photographing Marilyn from behind yeah. walking away. And and so I, it's kinda like it's speaking back to that but it's but it's framing it through through the female, the queer female gaze. Yeah. You know, so it's disrupting it, but it's taking that sort of very misogynistic act and, and just twisting it a little. Yeah. <laughs> and so then on Corky and Violet, they're 
probably the two central characters of Bound. And they are, I think queer is the safest or most accurate yeah, description yeah, to give yeah, them. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. they are at points involved in a relationship with one another. Okay, Bound is only 20 years old, so fair warning this time. There are spoilers upcoming. So if you want to press pause and join us at Quagoma to watch Bound before you continue listening, that's great. Otherwise, you have been warned. <laughs> How do they maybe kind of think or challenge or update the femme fatale role? Okay, yeah. Or how do they yeah. speak to a new position for yeah. women in film noir? Yeah, or indeed, how does um, making the protagonist female sort of male change things in relation to the femme fatale? Yeah, and how do they? Because yeah. they're both quite different women. They're not. Yeah. They do have some similarities, and there's that kind of nice. There's nice moments where they talk about how kind of at points similar they yeah. are. That wonderful moment towards the end of the film where they both put on glasses. We're the same because yeah. we're women. That sort of pres- that sort of presumption of but that because women we're all the same, which was actually a critique levelled at, at second wave feminism that that it didn't take into account. Um, women's different experiences, you yeah. know, race, class, um, and all those other gender indeed, and it yeah. lumped women as this unified Plump. one, um, which was actually seen as very problematic. Yeah, and and has received a lot of critiques since then. So I mean, I suppose in in that way, um, I in some ways you can read the characters in Bound as problematic, in some ways because they're stereotypical. You got the butch femme and the ultra femme femme yeah. so there's this pres- presumption of, of you know sort of queer coupling going on there that you know um that doesn't play out in real life yeah. um violet herself is is not that far removed from the classic font fatale she actually doesn't do anything different to the classic font fatale yeah she's you know, money hungry. She hangs around with gangsters. She's lazy. Seduces the person. Yeah, next yeah, door. and and uses Corky. Okay, and so yeah, they leave together at the end of the film. But who? It hangs sick in the air as to whether is is Violet going to then double cross Corky? Yeah. Quite probably, if you wanted to sort of have a continuum of that, you know, and speak back to. Oh, that makes me sad. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's what it. Again, though, it's sort of it. If that's what you're left with, yeah. So because you can't trust Violet. Yeah, there's yeah. always that. Concern. Is she really going to want half the money when she could have all of it? Mm. What what's you know, what's actually going to happen for Corky, who is very much a typical film noir protagonist? So she's, you know, she just got out of jail. So she's corruptible, or, and Corky's dodgy. Yeah. You know, like she's she's not manipulative and and evil or anything, but she's. On the outs. Yeah, yeah, she, she's, uh, yeah. But on that, in terms of what you maybe suggested about the ending, that, like, there is the possibility that Violet could just backstab her and mm. grab the money mm. and go, mm. do you not... The sense that I got, and this might be, like, a naive or kind of hopeful reading of the film, is that the film spends at least a bit of time setting up some kind of love or romantic engagement and do you not think there's the possibility that there could be like 
genuine affection between the two. I was so maybe that's me just being overly hopeful, (laughs) right? Just being so like, please may this turn out that this couple isn't like just ruined by the end, right? Well, yeah, but are you getting distracted by by the the passion of the relationship? Very possibly, yeah. Yeah, Because is that not a possibility? is, Is um. Is Violet even gay at all? It, or you know, I mean, she's with a, a bloke yeah. right up until you know she realizes that that Corky is checking her out. She's not unaware of Corky's attraction to her. Rather, she uses it to her advantage. So, is she even gay? Is she even queer? Or you know, but then it's like, like of all the people that you whatever, could. You know. But of all the people you could <laughs> use to get you out of that situation, there is there's, there's the a crim next door. The the, the the loner, right? The loner. But there's next also door. that I can't remember his name. The other mafia don who at the end suggests like, and I know she he's can't a man. go with he's him. He's not gonna. He yeah. He he's is less he trusted. too powerful? Yeah. He he would not be trustable. But you know she she knows she can sort of get corky oh, to... such a harsh reading of violence yeah, that makes but, you feel but, so upset I, I, I'm not you know the film is fabulous I love it yeah. I love so many things about it but this is the reality of Violet as a, as a femme fatale character she's you know she's not to be trusted <laughs> yeah that's just I would I would trust Corky yeah so for agreed. Sure. agreed yeah but no and, and to me the, the sense of of you're not trusting Violet is palpable. I, my interpretation is, I feel quite anxious for Corky. At the end yeah, of the film. continually I feel anxious <laughs> for her. I suppose I just wanted to overcome that anxiousness. Maybe yeah. I feel so anxious because, because for you her. want it to be because yeah. you're seeing on time, you know, and it and it was, you know, at that time. Well, you're seeing on screen um, these lovely transgressive characters, and and it's exciting to watch. Yeah. And a great deal of pleasure in their relationship and it really is it's fabulous you know and it's passionate and 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 so you invest your emotion in that relationship but hey you know the reality is (laughs) there is the lurking reality (laughs) yeah but you know it's it's you know it didn't go well for water it never goes well in classic film noir for 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 the man the 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 trouble protagonist yeah you know why should they they are so aware of that tradition i mean even in even in that you know 80s neo-noir you know think body heat and and um i mean things didn't go well for the protagonist in, in in that film either or um or the last seduction. Yeah, mm, 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 you there's know, a long <laughs> history of things not going well. The difference is though that the fond fatale gets away with it. Mm. So you start seeing that emerge. You know, Maddie in Body Heat, at the end of the film, she's lounging on a tropical island. She's she's got away with it all. Yeah. Same with um, uh, in the last seduction. You know, um, uh, the the fond fatale is like she's played them all for fools and the men are absolute fools in that film yeah you know so you see that happening okay um but the fundamental nature of the form of the tar, you know they're gonna the play you. yeah <laughs> never forget that they're gonna play you i leave you with the last words of violet bounds femme fatale to her husband caesar you don't want to shoot me vi do ya do ya i know you don't Caesar, you don't.
no shit.